Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Ed Miller, and welcome to I One Two, the podcast that spotlights important role players from your favorite professional teams and their journey to becoming a champion. This week, we head back to the ice and turn our focus to the New Jersey Devils. When you think of the Devils and their impressive three-cup run from the mid-1990s to the early 2000s, one name immediately comes to mind, Marty Brodeur. But today's guest was an important piece to New Jersey's first Stanley Cup. He was a left-winger who was drafted 16th overall in 1995 out of the University of Minnesota and played 11 seasons in the National Hockey League, with stints on Montreal, New Jersey, Ottawa, the New York Islanders, Washington, Calgary, and Pittsburgh. He had 20 goals and 21 assists during the 1994-95 campaign, adding a goal and five assists during the postseason. So let's talk with today's guest, Tom Shorsky. Minnesota is kind of a, uh, a hockey hotbed, and uh, does it put any pressure on a teenager being called Mr. Hockey and uh, getting all the accolades that kind of come with that in high school? For me, it was the very first year that it had ever been given out, so I didn't feel any pressure, and I don't re- really remember thinking about it during the season. I just remember being awarded it at the end, and so it didn't put any pressure on me. I think these days, kids aspire to, to win the award, I suppose. Hopefully it doesn't get in the way of their team play or being a team player. For the most part, I think that you know every year there's 10 finalists. Some years the finalist you know, goes on to play college hockey, but that's about it. The other non-winners, the, the finalists, or I should say the winner goes on, and the finalists might go on to be even more successful than the winner. It's, it's hard to tell, right, when someone's 18 or when the difference between a couple players is... is very slim. The margins are slim. So, you know, I think guy like um, T.J. Oshie, you know, didn't win it, but uh, became a pretty good player. And so every year there's just a, 10 great players and, and they, pick, they pick the player typically who looks like he's going to have, a, you know, a, an NHL career, but they're not always right. Yeah. I mean, it's always kind of the luck of the draw. Yeah. I mean, you just, some kids are just on the on the edge of becoming, you know, phenomenal, and and other kids have peaked. Some kids will go to college, and maybe they lose a, lose a little bit of drive or interest, or or they get into a, a situation where they're they're on such a good team that you know they're not playing that much. There's just there's a lot of things that can happen. So you know, but that being said, it's a it's a it's a big honor, it's a big award in in Minnesota to be named Mister Hockey, and I think at that point the players that win it um, are honored and. Uh, it's it's you know it doesn't replace if you don't win the state championship I don't think I think every year there's you know usually the player that wins it maybe didn't win the state tournament which is the uh, which is the true the true goal goal of of most Minnesota high school hockey players now as the state's best player I mean obviously you chose University of Minnesota because it's close to home but you could you could pick any college that's kind of focused on hockey why did you decide to choose U of M. Well, it's true. I mean, it wasn't just that it was close to home. and I had been going and watching him play. So I graduated in 1985. Everyone remembers the Miracle on Ice team in 1980. I had been, as a younger uh, kid, going over and watching a lot of those players play for the University of Minnesota. So I was influenced by that. I had always wanted to be a gopher hockey player. And, you know, the other thing I looked at was that they were going to be a strong team, too. You look at kind of the players that they have coming in. We ended up going to the Frozen Four all three years that I was there. So that was that was really cool and, and fun. I'm um, kind of proud of that accomplishment as well. So, and, and at that time, Minnesota, the Gophers were pretty much all Minnesota players. 
We did have a few non-Minnesotans, but for the most part, 90% of them were Minnesotans. And so it was kind of what you did. You, you, as a Minnesota kid, if you had the chance to go play for your hometown Gophers, that's what you did. It's kind of just a rite of passage. A little bit, a little bit in the hockey world back then, yeah. You mentioned the Frozen Four um, making it three, three times. Um, that final time, how much of a heartbreak was it to lose to Harvard in overtime? And, and you got so close, and now your college career is kind of coming to an end. Yeah, it was tough. I had tried out for the 88 Olympic team the year before. I was like the last player cut. And so I came back with really one goal, which was to win a national championship. And, you know, needed one more year, I thought, to, before I was going to turn pro. But again, we had a great team. Um, players like Todd Richards, who's now a, a coach in the NHL, Dave Snuggerud, Rob Stauber, who was a Hobie Baker goalie the year before, and then a, a whole bunch of really good Minnesota hockey players. And, and it was in St. Paul. It was in our hometown. We had had a great season. We kind of, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say we steamrolled, but we won, you know, a lot of hockey games that year and just felt like we were on a roll and we were. And then we just ran into a, a team that played a perfect game from their standpoint. And we just weren't quite good enough that night. And they kind of snuck out of town with the national championship right, right out from under us and terribly disappointing. It was a, that was a tough one to swallow because I think we all really felt like we were the best team and that we were going to win. And and you know, hats off to Harvard. They uh, they got the job done. And, and is that it was... is that something that sticks in your crawl a little bit? I mean, I know you. It's your senior year, and then you start focusing on the future ahead and what's potentially an NHL career. But does that one kind of live with you for a while and take a little bit to get over? Absolutely, that one lived with me for quite a while. I didn't. I don't think I watched it. You know, I think I had a a, a VCR of it, or it's on DVD now. But um, I didn't watch that game for quite a while. I. Just didn't want to go back and relive it. Uh, it was that disappointing. Drafted 16th overall by uh, Montreal in 1985. It was a year before the, the franchise won the Stanley Cup. What are your thoughts and your expectations going into Montreal? What, what do you hope to, I mean, you obviously hope to win a Stanley Cup, but what are you looking to get out of that experience? Well, yeah, I mean, right after I was drafted, then they won the Cup. And so by the time I got there, or I should say, I, I knew going into it, just a storied franchise, uh, tons of tradition, tons of legends around there. So I was really intimidated. Um, I felt a little bit of pressure as a first-round draft pick that um, the expectations were going to be high, and, and they were. You know, getting the experience I just hoped was to, to you know, make the team, make the lineup, and, and try to live up to the expectations. And the expectations in Montreal are always set pretty high. I mean, was there a lot of pressure in, involved with playing there? Yeah, there was. It's obviously a bilingual city, right? So there's there's French media and there's English or Anglo media and there's French players and there's English players. And, and back then there was a little bit of, you know, the French media supporting the French players and the English media sometimes would decide to support the English players or English speaking players. Can that separate <clears throat> the locker room at all? You know, I... I don't remember feeling that at all. You know, Chris Chelios was the captain, so he was an American. So it, it didn't feel like there was any prejudice, you know, from that standpoint. So I don't think there was that was the case going on. But if the media wanted to support a young French player over a, an Anglo player, they could do that. And there's like three newspapers from each side and there's three radio stations and there's three TV stations. And so when they open the doors after a practice to let the media in, and then there's national, you know, in addition to the local three channels I was telling you about and both on the French and the English, then there's national media. And, and so 
the the pressure on those media types and the and the and the press to come up with stories is immense. And so they're digging and clawing and scratching for angles and and that's where the pressure starts to come. They they get pretty pretty ruthless, you know, if you haven't scored in a while or you you know you missed an easy shot and, and they would they would not miss on on those things because they were all clawing and scratching for some kind of story. There's always that magnifying glass on you. Oh yeah, there you know, I always said if you won the game it was the front page news and headline and if you lost it was the biggest news in town so either way it was front page news what memories stand out for from draft day where where did you kind of take all that in and how did you take all that in so i was projected to go in in the second round kind of early mid second round so i and and back then 1985 i was at home i expected my phone to ring so i was kind of hanging around on a saturday morning but hadn't traveled up to Mon- the draft was in Montreal too so it would have been it would have been pretty special I guess to be there but really didn't hadn't hadn't talked to Montreal and so I had no inkling that Montreal was going to pick me they had two picks in the first round and uh, they had a one earlier than 16 and then they took me at 16 so when I got the call I was actually pretty shocked and again pretty intimidated that Turns out that the draft was in Montreal. The Montreal Canadiens just picked me 16th overall. I, I couldn't. I couldn't really quite believe it. Is there a little bit of celebrating that comes after that phone call, and then kind of a transition to, all right, this is what I got to do. This is this is the game plan. Yeah, I mean, I think again, honor felt honored, humbled a little bit, knowing the magnitude of of the Montreal Canadiens storied you know organization and all the great players, and and then for them to take a chance on me at going that high you know it felt good but it it felt a little daunting too a little little intimidating that uh i was taken that high i just never pictured myself being a first round draft pick now you're in montreal for a few years um is it true i'm a little young for this so i don't quite remember it but um that you played this in the soviet union in a, in a friendship tour what what was that like yeah that was pretty cool that was um during training camp we went over there to to uh kind of get ready for the season. <clears throat> I think the Minnesota North Stars were over there too for a time. We kind of overlapped. But it was it was actually a pretty, pretty special treat. And I have a scrapbook that the Montreal Canadiens put together for us that, you know, that was, this was 1980, 1990. And, and, you know, back then it was still very much, you know, Red Army-ish and, and communist-like. And so um, we got a glimpse of glimpse of all that. And opportunity to play in Russia, you know, something, again, that you, you don't ever, you know, you don't really dream about, but hockey takes you to all the corners of the world, and it's one of the best things about having a, a long career and, and a career at that level is the kind of the special things you get to do. Is it a little bit of a culture shock? I mean, you're coming off the tail end of the Cold War, and, and life's a lot different over there. Is it is it weird to kind of transition from, from America to the Soviet Union? Yeah, that was sort of, you know, tail end of when when people would, they'd tell you that if you went over there with American goods, like, you know, if you had Levi jeans or like a, maybe a fighter jacket, you know, like a, a jet fighter jacket or whatever, those leather jackets, certain things that were very American or Americana, Russians would claw over you and they wanted to trade you. <laughs> they would trade all these things that they had for, for what you had, and um, which is pretty interesting because, you know, to us, a pair of blue jeans isn't a big deal, but to them, they couldn't get Levi blue jeans. And if you had if you had a pair of Levi's, they would they would give you all kinds of watches. Or, you know, the trade value was crazy. So 
Yeah, it's basically like wearing gold. Yeah, yeah, it had <laughs> it had value, and and so we we got to experience that, and and came home with some some you know memorabilia ourselves, and but yeah, it was a culture shock. Food food is a culture shock, and and just seeing how you know kind of the the tone of the culture was was evident. You know that these, they were living in a pretty subdued environment or you know country not was this about the time too when russians were starting to come into the the nhl and kind of starting to make that leap right shortly right after that yeah don't know if slava fetisov fetisov had made his way to new jersey quite yet in 89 or not i don't remember i ended up playing with him in new jersey so um i don't know if i should know that or not but slava you know (laughs) really classy guy that i got to know in kazatonov and ultimately played against uh you know those the fabulous five that came over and so but yeah that's they were they were to come in the next in the coming years right after that time well you mentioned new jersey let's kind of jump into it what was the reasoning for leaving montreal and making your way to new jersey were you a ufa or was it a trade uh it was a trade i wasn't playing a lot i just i was playing for pat burns i was not his kind of guy at least at the time and i just sensed it and so I actually asked for a trade. I just thought a, a fresh start um, somewhere else was was going to be better. And Serge Savard was the GM at the time, and and he he honored it. I guess he agreed. So we were in agreement that maybe I should go start my restart my career somewhere else. And uh, it happened to be New Jersey. And Stefan Richet and I were traded for uh, Kirk Muller, and Roland Melanson was in there too. So it's kind of a two for two. But I think at the end of the day, everyone would feel like it worked out great for both sides. Did you have a list of teams, um, maybe not that you presented to the franchise, but a list of teams in your head of kind of like, I wouldn't mind going here, I wouldn't mind going there? I, I didn't have that, I didn't have that uh, leverage, I don't think, mm. first of all. And second of all, I guess I just was thinking, you know, might maybe go back to the U.S. might be a, my next um, place to, to, at that time, because um, that's just, I was still kind of young and inexperienced but I thought when I ended up getting traded to New Jersey I thought oh this will be great you know I'll be back in the U.S. and not that I disliked Canada because I ended up playing for the Ottawa Senators and had a great experience there loved the city loved my teammates um, loved my time in in uh, Ottawa and then really playing in the NHL there's nothing like playing uh, road games or playing games in the country uh, of Canada and NHL games in Canada no matter what city you're in are are always great. Is that kind of a tough dynamic, play, uh, playing and living in Canada, where some players can do it and other players it just doesn't work for them? You know, I, it should work as long as you have a decent, positive attitude. But, yeah, I think there are people that decide that they don't want to live in, in Canada and, or, or, you know, unfortunately maybe it's, maybe it's their spouse doesn't want to live in Canada for whatever reason. But it, it really shouldn't be a challenge. And these days, you know, I, I think the only... The only negative about playing in Canada is is the sometimes the press and the media pressures a little greater, but mm-hmm. certainly not the fans or the people or I mean the cities are for the most part are awesome places to live too. Well, that first year in New Jersey, you were coached by Herb Brooks. Um, he only coached there for a season, and he was obviously very well known for 1980 and probably a guy you looked up to a little bit because he was from your area. What was what were some of his colorful 
Brooksisms that you might remember? Yeah, well, I, I should say my very first season I played for Tommy McVie. He was he's worth mentioning because he helped me a lot and he he gave me a chance and and he's a real character himself. But yeah, the second year was Herb Brooks and and he is from Minnesota and yeah, he was an iconic coach for me because I mentioned that the eighty Olympics had a big impact on on me and and my I guess desire to play hockey you know at higher levels and so herb herb was hard to play for though he was demanding uh had really high expectations he'd 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 put higher expectations on you than you had for yourself even so that was his way of pushing you but you know he literally told me the legs feed the wolf i got that one one day and then he came back the next day to see if i knew what he meant uh what else he gave i think he did give us the you're playing worse and worse every day, and right now it looks like next week or something. <laughs> Did you get um, any of the uh, the the monkey humping the football? Yeah, I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like over the course of the year he he worked all of them in, but and he was he was kind of a, he was pretty quick witted too. If someone said something to him, he'd have he'd have a pretty um, sarcastic remark waiting. But yeah, those are true. He he, he used those um, sayings, and, and another one was. Uh, one and one isn't two. One and one is three. You know, with syner- synergy type stuff, and some of the stuff flew right over our heads, right, or flew over some guys' heads. They were like, "What is he talking about? One and one is three. I, I don't get it." But um, but it's funny now. Almost thirty years later, you still remember some of them. Yeah, and I, coincidentally, I was texting with his son Danny today. So um, <laughs> yeah, kind of a small world that way too. But that we're talking about her Brooks. Uh, he's a guy that that worked his players to the bone and got the results he he looked for. Was that intimidating? Well, yeah, because he was hard on he was hard on the guys and he was hard on me. Um, I know I didn't play every game for him. He he scratched me a couple times and early on he told me he said, "Hey, I've been watching you my whole life and I think I." I think I know that uh, you're going to have to play harder and better if you're going to play for me, some kind of thing. So he challenged me right away. And um, it, it was daunting because I just wanted to please him. And before I could even please him, he told me that I was going to have to do better kind of thing, you know. So he was that kind Does of Does that coach. feel like tough love for you? Yeah, well, for sure. It, it felt like tough something. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a little, it was intimidating or daunting for, for me to start off that way, you know, to have him challenge me before we even really played a game. Cause I feel like some players would, would see it as tough love, but others might, might turn their nose to it and be like, I'm better than this. I can go play somewhere else where I don't have to, where I can have a cushier coach that, that doesn't breathe down my neck as much. Yeah. I think sometimes you see that. I certainly wasn't looking to go anywhere. I, I was just caught off guard thinking that I had I had come to New Jersey, had a you know pretty good year the year before, and Herb Brooks here comes he in, and I'm I can skate really well. I, I'll do anything he wants me to do. Um, I believe I can play the style of hockey he wants me to play, and then he challenges me and 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 almost threatens me that I, I might not be able to get the job done for him. And so yeah, it was but I but I wanted to be there so badly, and I wanted to play for him so badly. I just it just knocked me off balance a little bit, but. Uh, you know, you got to persevere through that stuff. Was there much of a transition from from Brooks to to Jacques Lemaire and kind of his style? Well, it was it was definitely different. You know, Herb was probably a lot of movement, and you know, he the, historically the NHL was up and down the wings, kind of that north south thought process, and and or east west, I should say. I mean, the, historically the NHL is north south, and then Herb wanted to go east and west and zigzag and and do all kinds of a little bit more movement. And then Jacques came in, and Jacques was a little bit more traditional, 
everyone remembers us playing the trap style defense and neutral zone, uh, which was got blown out of proportion. It was just it's just a different type of kind of forecheck. It's a little bit passive, I guess, but we executed it really well. And well, people don't find it quite as entertaining, and that's right. that's where it kind of comes from because it really shuts down offense. Well, yeah, it shuts down the other team's offense, but typically we were creating turnovers out in the neutral zone or high in the offensive zone and being able to counterattack. And so instead of dumping the puck in and chasing in there and then battling for it behind the goal line and then working your way to get it back out in front of the net to get a shot on net and scoring, we were just inviting the team to come out. And at that time there was a red line, so they had to get to the red line before they could shoot it all the way down or it'd be icing. And so we would force them to make a pass. We wouldn't let them get to the red line, so they are going to have to do something to move it. And we didn't give them any options, and we knew what those options were, so we typically would intercept passes or turn the puck over and then counterattack. And so it just was a really, I think, efficient, effective way to, uh, to, to play the game. It was kind of energy consumption. and Plus, we had great defensemen, you know, Scott Stevens and... Ken Danico and Bruce Driver and great goalie, Scott Niedemeyer, I should say, too, and great goalie and Marty Brodeur. So we were hard to score on anyway, and, and then we played this, this type of neutral zone that we were able to turn pucks over and re-attack that way, and it was just a great system. Was that system, did it wear on you simply based on the fact that the media constantly brought it up and kind of, in a way, bad-mouthed it, for lack of a better term? Didn't wear on us. I, I think we thought it was, like I said, efficient, effective, almost energy saving, you know, you, you didn't have to go run around and smash into guys if, if it wasn't there. If you, if you could get in on the forecheck and, and paste a guy they wanted you to, and that's why we had the crash line. Those guys were, were pretty good at that. But if you weren't going to be able to win a race to the puck, he just said, then don't worry about it. Just sit back a little bit and angle. And as they come out, we'll just take the puck away from them. So uh, it didn't wear on the players. It, it, it wore on people that that bought into the boringness of it and and you know some once you are sold something or start believing something it built up it built up some energy and it was just kind of annoying for us to have to listen to it but uh people in the media they kind of fear what they don't know i mean it was kind of the same with the west coast offense and football where it was a different style of play and it was a little bit slower for the game and and since that's it it's just like we don't like this we want it the way it used to be well they have to write about something and and again yeah. once they get something that they can grab onto and hang on to and it was just when we would come into town typically that's what the opposing media would would gripe about was was oh here comes the new jersey devils plays a boring style of hockey yawn 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 but we were still we were scoring four or five six goals a game it's not like we weren't generating offense um and we just weren't giving up very much either but their perception was that we just sat back and played kind of a prevent defense and you know at times i'm sure it looked and felt like that but we just got really good at it and kept turning pucks over and re-attacking and and teams always they believed they they thought they could beat us at it because whatever it's i think it's kind of why we ended up winning the cup against detroit was that they felt they could out talent us and it became talent against a system and we just we had that thing locked down and and uh, and we were able to demonstrate that or, or execute you know in '95. 
despite what they say, 94-95 was quite an exciting season, even from the get-go. I mean, you guys only played 48 games, and you spent some time in Europe at the beginning of that season because of a lockout. What was it like for you to uh, to play Serie A and, and kind of the culture, going back with the Soviet Union, same concept? Well, that was just a lot of fun. Um, I had a friend at the time, uh, well, I'm still friends with him, Mike DeAndres, but at the time he was playing for the team in Milan, and, and we weren't playing and he said hey do you want to get on the ice and come over and skate for us and I I said well yeah sure that'd be great um why not and so hopped on a plane got over there and negotiated a quick little contract it really wasn't about the money it was about getting on the ice and skating and and you know threw me into an apartment and and didn't I didn't have any kids uh at the time and it was just kind of fun to be living in Milan and and uh playing in that league it was you know a couple games a week it was wasn't wasn't very, you know, hard. It wasn't like playing in the NHL where you're you had aches and pains after every game, and you know, practice in the morning and kind of relax in the afternoon, or go out for a lunch in Milan and a little bit of nightlife back then too, I suppose, just to have some fun. We were we were in our twenties, so why not, right? So yeah, it was fun. It was it was a great experience. Was it tough to remain focused on on kind of? what was going on with the NHL and knowing that at any moment you could up and leave because either you'd go back to the NHL or the season would just upright be canceled. Was that something that was constantly on your mind? It was. I mean, it was certainly fingers crossed that we were going to get back uh, on the ice in the NHL. So I was keeping an eye on that. And um, I remember went home for Christmas at Christmas time and we still hadn't, we still hadn't settled and we weren't back uh, on the ice in the NHL. And the, the Italian team was, begging me to come back, just come back. You guys aren't going to play, you know, kind of thing. And I, at that point I was already back in New Jersey and was pretty hopeful that it was going to get worked out. And so I, I decided, you know, to hang tight. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, we were, uh, we were back playing in the NHL. Throughout your career, it's, it's been a marathon. The, the entire season has been a marathon. But for this, it's 48 games and it's a little bit more of a sprint. Is that transition difficult to kind of just jump into it and and all of a sudden every point matters a little bit more you know it's 48 games still felt like you know a considerable amount yeah i guess it's almost half but we were just so ex- i think we just were excited to be back playing and we were back on the ice and the season wasn't going to be canceled it was you know we were going to play it out and the year before we had come so close you know we lost to the rangers in game 7 double overtime and so we just we were so focused on kind of that unfinished business uh, of getting getting to the cup what was it that put you over the hump from from that year before to to winning the cup what was it about that team that was different that got over that hump well i mean i think when you go as far as you did the the, the year before you certainly have your experience now you you know what it's like um it gives you confidence that you can do it again um you're familiar with it you know you know kind of what it takes to get through those seven game series you know but Marty Brodeur is a year older. Niedermeyer is a year older. Scott Stevens is just a you know tremendous leader, and and we just had we had a good decor, and then we brought you know Brian Rolston started coming into the mix as a young forward. So I think I think we got just a little bit better, and we had that leadership and the and that core group that had been there the year before, and we we traded out a, a few players, and that's all it took. 
You mentioned Marty Brodeur. I mean, we can't talk about the New Jersey Devils without talking about Martin Brodeur. He really made a name for himself in that postseason the year prior, but he took it to a whole nother level in 94-95. He posted a 1.67 GAA. Can you talk about his importance to the team and, and the kind of competitor that he is? Well, when you have a goalie who's so good like that, and he's young, and so it's exciting that you, you think you've got this phenom, and he was pretty much a phenom, and full of energy, and his disposition was relaxed. Not, you know, He's not so serious uh, day in and day out. He's usually a pretty happy guy, you know, pretty jovial, and, and just so good. You know, And he could play the puck, too. That was a huge factor on the ice. He was like having a third defenseman back there. Um, yeah, they basically changed the game for him. Yeah. Yeah, they made rules because made of him. Rules because of him. So you just you feel like you've got you know captured lightning in a bottle, and you just know you got something special. And and you look at any team that wins a championship, and they're going to have some some special goaltending going on. So that's kind of where it starts, and and we knew we had that. So that gives you just a ton of ton of confidence. You also played with Patrick Waugh in Montreal, so you've played with two all time <laughs> goaltenders. Are there are a lot of similarities between the two, or are they all, they as far as style and as far as off the ice and their personality? You know what? Personalities were a little different, although both very, very, very competitive. Neither one of them would wanted to even give up a goal in practice, like in a drill. Day in and day out, if, if there was a puck that got past them, they usually turned around and, and scooped it out so that by the end of the drill, there was no pucks in there. They didn't, want it. they didn't want anyone to know how many maybe had gone in. And when you scored on those guys, you felt pretty good. It was almost like scoring a goal in a game. But, you know, I'd say Patrick... Was a little older anyway, so but a little more serious. Marty, a little more easygoing, but both just so I guess focused on on being the best. I mean, guys like that, you know, players players that are Hall of Famers like that and have careers the way they did. It's a different breed, you know. They're they are I don't know. They're just one level, two levels above the rest of the pro hockey players that. Uh, that are good, right? Like, I mean, I played 11 seasons, played about 600 games, won a Stanley Cup, had a good career. But guys like that are on a, they're just on another plateau. They're just gamers. I mean, I spoke to, to Sean Podine in a previous podcast, and it's funny that you mentioned up, didn't want to allow a goal because he mentioned the same thing about Wah, that he beat him one day in practice. And it was something to the effect of for the rest of the practice, Wah was like, I'm not letting another one in, and he didn't. And and I yeah. think the rest of the team was getting a little frustrated with the fact that Putin had scored on him. Yeah, and those guys would say that in a game too. If mm-hmm. if we were going into the third period and we're down by one or it's tied, you know, they could look at the team and they'd say, "I'm not letting in anymore. If you guys can get two, we'll win the game." And they would. They'd shut the door. We'd get two goals, and you'd win. And you'd be like, "That guy wasn't kidding. He <laughs> he he called it and he backed it up." And yeah, those guys, um, they. They just were super, you know, uber competitive, and that's that's why they won so many games. Entering the postseason as the fifth seed, um, was it tough to not have a home ice advantage, and was that something that weighed on you guys a little bit? I don't remember that being a big problem. You know, the way we played, I mean, we 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 appreciated our home ice fans, and we we you know we played well, and we liked being at home. But you know, it seems like the advantage, the other advantages, weren't really necessary. You know, I mean getting the last change, you know, coming in second on the face-off, things like that that you get when you're at home weren't factors. Uh, you get in the playoffs, and as long as you're in a, as long as you're in a you know, crazy hockey town uh, and, and the crowd's going nuts, you can use, you can use an opposing crowd um, going crazy just as much as a hometown crowd. Just, 
you just love being in that atmosphere and, and NHL playoff hockey. There's nothing like it. So, you know, we're in Pittsburgh, we're in Philly, we're in Madison Square Garden. It's just pure energy, right? So it's all good. Did you guys kind of embrace that underdog status at that point? And, and I know it, come the playoffs, there was kind of rumblings about potentially moving to Nashville as well. So did all of that kind of create the perfect storm of, of well, if we don't feel wanted, if no, our back's against the wall, we're going to do this? Yeah, I think, if anything, we did have a good mentality about being an underdog. If, if, if teams were going to take us lightly and didn't think we were for real or thought that you know we're a bunch of mediocre or you know good but not great players and we've got this system we were fine with that you know because as it turns out we really had some budding stars we had Bill Guerin and Brian Rolston and Niedermeyer and you know Sergey Breland went on to be just a tremendous player these young guys that were just sort of you know starting out on top of like I said Scott Stevens and and uh, Ken Danico and Bruce Driver Johnny Mack was a great leader for for the team you know all these guys that you know Weren't, wouldn't blow your socks off maybe uh, if, if you thought of them, you know, if you compared them to other players. But as a group and, and as a unit, we had it going pretty good. Yeah, they seem like kind of a hodgepodge of players. They kind of came from all backgrounds and all, and all, all different areas. But in the end, it seemed like it was the perfect mix of ingredients for that specific recipe. Yeah, we were tough too. Randy McKay was tough and, and you know, had goal-scoring ability. Um, Mike Peluso would do anything for us and, and, and fought anyone for us. Bobby Holik played with those guys. He was a first-round draft pick, you know, a little more skilled guy, but put him with two heavy wingers, and he's a heavy center and, and with some skill and could shoot it, and Jock played those guys pretty regularly. So it's not like they were a fourth line that sat on the bench, and maybe sometimes they were third line, whatever. Um, we were rolling, you know, we were rolling at least our lines or our players, you know, the, the guy, we had guys that killed penalties but weren't on the power play, and the other guys that didn't kill penalties were on the power play. So everyone, whatever the situation was, um, we were using everyone, and I think that helped a lot too, that we all felt like we were all contributing. Just a well-oiled machine, and, and that's just kind of how we rolled. Can you give us your best memory of each series uh, leading up and including the Stanley Cup final? Uh, we'll start with the quarterfinals versus Boston. Your, your one memory that sticks in your mind. Well, loved playing in, in Boston. It was the old garden. You know, it's not huge for the series, but I do remember thinking, wow, this, they're going to shut this building down. It's a historic, you know, original six arena, and we're, we're going to close this thing down. You know, I just think of the strategies that we had to, to utilize in a smaller rink. You know, Ray Bork was their, was their all-star defenseman, and so we typically would throw the puck in his corner and try to make him go get it and, and finish checks on him to tire him out and wear him out. Then they figured that out, so we'd throw it in his corner, and his partner would go get it, and he'd, he'd, he'd just stay out of the corner. But, you know, just, I don't know, just playing the Bruins in the playoffs and, you know, is, is, is kind of what I remember and, play, and shutting down the old Boston Garden. Let's move to the semifinals versus uh, the Penguins. Well, that's always a fun challenge, you know. Yarmir Yager, Mario Lemieux, Ron Francis, Tom Brasso, all these great players. They had a great team. Larry Murphy on defense. So we had our hands full in trying to make sure we could keep them off the board, stay out of the penalty box because their power play was so lethal. I think most mem- the biggest memory I have from that is um, o- overtime goal. Maybe Randy McKay scored some close games, maybe a couple overtime games in that series. But, uh, yeah, just trying to shut down that, that wicked offense that they had. And then the, uh, the Eastern Conference Finals against the Flyers. 
that one I remember um, was pretty fascinating because we went down there and we won the first two games and, you know, felt like we were on our way because, you know, as you go, every time you win a series, you've, you've won that series and you've packed them up and, and now you, you start this third series, you win the first two games. On the road, you're going home. You'd think life's going to be, you know, pretty good. Not necessarily easy, but, but then they win two games, you know, in our building. And now we're back to square, and all of a sudden it's a big wake-up call. So, you know, the memories also were uh, unexpected, but huge goal by Claude Lemieux on Ron Hextall that uh, just so timely, and, and, and he was so good in the playoffs. You know, Claude Lemieux just kind of Mr. Playoff guy and, and uh, had such a great, had a gr- such a, obviously won the Conn Smythe by the end of it. So that says it all. He, he had such a great playoff run for us. Was that goal right at the end of game yeah. five, like towards yep. the end? Yeah, it looked like, looked like we were probably going into overtime, and he, he just snuck one past him, kind of a slap shot coming down the right side, right on the ice. Now, you guys beat the Flyers, but beforehand, were you scoreboard watching to see if the Rangers would, would advance against the Flyers and kind of keeping an eye on that to see if you'd get some sort of revenge? I don't remember if we were, but we, we probably were. Although coaches will tell you, you know, to focus on our own game and, you know, that. Yeah, you don't want to get you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself because that that usually ends up uh, biting you in the ass. So um, we <laughs> we probably were, but I don't remember. I don't remember it specifically. And what's your best memory of the Stanley Cup final besides hoisting Lord Stanley's Cup? Probably the the opening moments of Game One, just electric, and and I thought I was ready for it. Thought you know I'd been through been to Game Seven double overtime Eastern Conference Finals the year before, gotten through it this year. You know, it's the Stanley Cup, but yeah, we've been through a bunch of playoff series. When they dropped the puck, all of a sudden it hit me like, this is this is a big deal. This is for all the marbles. And uh, Were there butterflies? Yeah, there, was some, there were some butter, more butterflies than I expected. That's what I'm getting at. Um, all of a sudden I was pretty damn nervous about jumping on the ice. And, you know, Detroit had great team, tons of talent and... and Fedorov and, you know, Iserman and all these guys that were uh, such high-powered offensive guys. You just felt like you are going to be a little bit overwhelmed with it. But the other memories were uh, Scott Niedemeyer's goal. He, he, he rushed a puck all the way up and scored a uh, really important goal in, in that first uh, maybe game two. Jimmy Dowd scored a big goal in game two to, to I think, was the winning goal. From that series, I just remember having tons of butterflies early. Then we settled in. And then Marty Brodeur, after two games, we were flying home, and he he said to me, he goes, I think I think we're going to win this thing. And I thought, it's only two games, and you're already thinking we're going to win this thing. And we were on a flight to back to, you know, we were on the team plane. And I was blown away that that we were going to win the cup, and Marty was predicting it. Is that kind of when it hit you, where even at that point you're like, nah, this still isn't real. I want to see this through till the end. Yeah, I think, you know, then we win game three. Story from... From from that, we win Game Three. We're going into Game Four, and we weren't we were practicing before Game Four, and and we weren't handling the puck very well, and it seemed kind of quiet, I guess, and just wasn't real loose and and ener- like high energy. And Jacques Lemaire called us in, and he said, "What's wrong, you guys? Why 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 so tight? Why why aren't you having fun?" And that's interesting coming from him because he he only smiled when they when they yeah, won the cup. Yeah, when he didn't, won not, the cup. Not, 
he smiled off camera probably or behind the scenes, but <laughs> likes to have fun. But he's when he's when he's got game face when it's game time. But anyway, he said he said we were up three zero, right? He's like, do you really think they're going to beat you four straight? Just relax and have fun and don't worry about you know being being nervous and stressed. Just you'll be fine. So he loosened us up and you know as 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 we all know, we ended up going out and having a great game four and and swept the series. You mentioned game four. After taking a 3 nothing series lead, uh, you closed, you're looking to close this, out the Stanley Cup at home. Is that something that's very important? Is it something that's on a player's mind of just like, I'd like to skate this around in front of my hometown crowd? I think so. You know, we don't, we don't have any idea that there's a big party planned, you know, with, at a hotel or any of that, but there was. But I do think because at that point, it's, you know, we're only game four, but it's the second game back in our building and we obviously everyone has their family there right like and so you start to think boy it'd be awesome if we could wrap it up in four games because you know i've got my whole family i I must have had 10 people there i did have a few relatives that lived in the in new york but most of my family was from when had flown out from minnesota and some cousins and all kinds of people but so you're thinking, yeah, God, if we don't win this, then we have to go back, and they won't come back. Then you know the next time because it'd just be too much travel in a short amount of time. So would they make the trip to Detroit though? For the, I for guess they might have. Yeah, I guess they they could have. Yeah, I don't know. We never got to that point. <laughs> yeah, it's something you never had to right. worry about. What are you, what's your memory of as the final game horn sounded and and you guys had won? I'm sure a lot of it's a blur, but is there anything that kind of still sticks in there? Well, you can't really, it's hard to believe. It's, you, you just can't almost fathom what's just happened. Um, I was actually on the ice when the buzzer went off. And so I remember just kind of just being overwhelmed and not sure what to do. I mean, yeah, we're going to go jump around and celebrate with each other. But you don't, even, you're like, you don't even know who to turn to. You don't know what to say, except you're just so excited and you can't believe that, uh, that this is actually happening. And it gets even worse when the, when they bring out the cup and you get to hold the cup. It's just surreal. You, you can't, you just can't compute almost that you've watched this celebration happen. You know, if at the time I'm 27 years old and I've been watching it since I was seven, I've watched it 20 times roughly. And, and now I'm in it, you know, and I've seen Gretzky do it and I've seen Lemieux do it. You've seen, you know, all these, famous hall of famers do it now i'm getting to do it too it's 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 mind-blowing it's just kind of emotion overload like it it, like you said it just does i mean i can imagine it just does not compute yeah i mean there's a there's a commercial that the nhl throws out there usually during stanley cup time and it's called no words and they they show all these players getting asked what it feels like to win the cup and they're Mm -hmm. lost they're at a loss for words and they don't know what to say and that's not that's not false it's real and that's their actual footage of these players right and they just they can't explain how it feels to win the cup when it's something that's so important to you well tom how does it feel to win the stanley cup when you're when you're skating that thing around what what does that feel like it's very valid besides heavy yeah it's 34 pounds and at the time you got a lot of (laughs) adrenaline so it doesn't you're not thinking of it too heavy it's a little awkward though because you're not used to skating with something like that big over your head so you don't want to tip over but i think it's 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 validating it feels like a lot a lot a lot of work and and years of of commitment and training and you know ups and downs and you know i got 
cut from Olympic teams and got sent to the minors and I'd been scratched in the minors and I'd been scratched in the NHL, but it's kind of like you've persevered and you're so glad that you stuck with it. So there's a lot of emotions. You know, I think it's pure joy that, that you want it, but it's also a sense of accomplishment, a sense of satisfaction, uh, like I said, validation a little bit on, on that you really are, a, you know, you've, you've, you've accomplished, you know, something that not a lot of players get to do. And so it validates that you're, you know, you are a good hockey player and you were part of a, part of a team that put together uh, an incredible run. You know, that's the other thing about it is you really start to understand what it's like to be on a high-functioning team that plays so well together that, you know, no one could have done it by themselves, but together we, we were all um, able to do it. Uh, we were underdogs, I think, so uh, that was another really gratifying thing. So just a, a ton of emotions. You know, I probably named off eight or ten probably right there. So Is it making sure that you don't take it for granted too? Because you, you hear these stories about the, the young guy that wins it in his rookie year, and it's like, oh, we go every year, right? Like this is kind of the norm. And it, is it making sure that you, you soak it all in because, I mean, you never know if you're going to get back or not? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you celebrate, you know, your tail off for, to enjoy it, but... Um, you know, I think the next when you show up at training camp the next year, it's it's just the hockey way, the 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 NHL culture that and coaches will make sure that you're not you know too too cocky or whatever about it. So yeah, you put that to rest, but yeah, you enjoy it and and but you don't know. I think like you said, you don't know when you're going to win it again. So it's really all about back to work. You know, there is a sense when you win it at some point. You've, you've celebrated, you've enjoyed all your emotions. And then, you know, there is a little bit of a, a sense of like, now what? Like, because the whole time... You climb the mountain. Yeah, you've climbed the mountain and now you're at the top of the mountain and you're like, I'm done climbing, uh, you know? So <laughs> then you really, that was a real emotion too that felt like it was all about the chase and the pursuit. And now the chase is over, I caught it. And so you have to go back and go back to the starting line and, and start over again. Is that tough to contemplate? Is that is that something that takes t- a little bit of time after you've won and af- after all the confetti's settled? Um, it's probably different for everyone depending on your situation. I unfortunately I got traded to Ottawa right after the next year, and so I really wasn't part of New Jersey's attempt to you know win it again. They didn't even make the playoffs though the next year, so you know they I don't know what was going on, but they had changed the team enough that they. He didn't even get back to the playoffs the following year. So, you know, something went haywire there. But um, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to to get done. From hoisting the cup and the whole Stanley Cup ceremony to the locker room, who did you kind of hang out with? Who was who was kind of your celebration buddy if you had one or two that you were kind of partners in crime, for lack of a, of a better term? You know, we were all kind of close. You know, I think my neighbors at that time, like Billy Guerin and his wife Kara, it's my wife and I, Christy, John, um, the McLeans, uh, McKay's, Danico's. You know, we probably those guys were, you know, the most. We all had, you know, we all were pretty close. You know, Rolston was single, single guy, probably 21 years old or something at the time, 22. Um, but we took him under our wing too. And, and so it was, it was a group effort of, of hanging out. The parade was three days after, which anymore, that seems like that's a bit much. Um, was there a lot of anxiousness of like, all right, I want to do this. I want to I celebrate with the fans. I've shared it with my team. Now I want to share it with my town. 
Yeah. Um, you know, we, we celebrated pretty long and hard after the game. I remember I went down. I also, my, my wife had shown me, had introduced me to the shore. And so we went from the from the game to the hotel party. And then we took the cup with the team and we went out to Verona. There was a bar there that we used to hang out at, the Verona Inn. We stayed there until kind of sunrise, early morning. And then I went down with my wife. I slept. I think she was she was driving. She was the designated driver, but took us down the shore. And so I like ended up partying down <laughs> at the shore for a day too. It's good that the parade wasn't the next day because I would have missed it. A lot of fun times down there. But the, the parade, you know, I think... I think I remember just thinking like I don't know how this is going to go. I, we're we're doing it in the parking lot. I don't know, you know, I don't know how they're going to do this. And as it turned out, I think the, there were so many people that showed up and the way they set it up. I think we we looped around twice or something, and we were in convertibles. And there was a big stage that we did a we did a kind of a stage thing before or after that we were in the parades. But each couple had their own car, I think. So yeah, so it was just Christy and I. But it worked out great. And, you know, you felt like you were so close to the fans and so many came out and having a parking lot and a parade didn't sound like, you know, it's not like the same as ticker tape parade going down, you know, Madison Avenue or whatever. But it was great. It was awesome. It just felt like what mattered was that we were the first team that ever won a championship in New Jersey and everyone was just so excited. You know, they just, they came out and supported us so hard. It was great. There was a sense of validation, and in, in kind of a way, you guys put New Jersey on the map a little bit. I mean, it's not exactly a sports hotspot with, with four major sports teams, you know? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, the Giants were big, but they're called the New York Giants, right? They're not the New Jersey Giants, but they played in New Jersey. But still, they're a New York-labeled team, you know, and the Knicks were big, and the Rangers were big, and the Jets New York team again, but play in New Jersey. And then you got the Yankees that are the hugest. And, and so, yeah, we were, you know, we were way down the food chain when it came to, you know, pro sports in the area. But we did kind of put them on the map with that championship. And, and then, you know, a couple more championships in the years to follow um, meant that kind of got the ball rolling there for New Jersey. But yeah, I think we felt like we did we did do uh, do them a solid, getting them on the map with a with a championship. Not long after uh, you appeared on David Letterman with some of the other guys on the team, I I went back and I watched it today. You were kind of part of the top ten segment, and then you you guys all poured his coffee into the yeah. mug. What, what was that like? Got a call and said, "Hey, we we've been invited to go on the David Letterman show. Who wants to go?" And how there must have been eight of us or whatever that said, "Yeah, we'll do it." And so we limoed into the city and, you know, we were backstage and in the green room. And uh, just at that time, David, the Letterman show was the kind of the hottest show on TV, at least late night. So it was just a cool thing to do to, to go out. And first we brought out the, yeah, we brought out the top 10 lists was the first thing we did. And then we, the second, he, he actually, it went, it went so well that he goes, hey, let's do something else. And producers went to work and they go, hey, we're going to put some coffee in there. You can come out and fill up his coffee cup. So that's what we did. But uh, <sighs> just cool to be. And then after, when the, we made it, we got done with our second appearance and then they had the rest of the show. Remember Diane Lane was on. She was the guest and along with someone else. I don't know who the other guest was, I don't think. But everything was gone. The, 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 crowd, the fans were, crowd was gone or the audience was gone. <laughs> David Letterman was gone, and we went back on stage, and we we took pictures behind the desk and in the chairs and hanging out on stage. It was it was just one more, you know, kind of fun and cool thing that we got to do after winning the cup. Yeah, it's a fun little souvenir and a fun oh, yeah. memory. 
Yeah, there was lots of them. How did you spend your day with the Stanley Cup? Did you have it planned, or was oh, yeah. it kind of spur of the moment? What'd you, no, what'd you do I had it, it planned, um, although that was just kind of the beginning of having it planned. But I, I, kind of, I had some people that asked me to show up, one, to a sports talk radio, and did that in the morning. And then a good friend of mine and my best man at my wedding, Chris May, his dad ran an ice arena that we had skated a lot at. And he said, hey, would you come bring it out to the rink? I'll tell all the kids in the neighborhood that it's going to be here. And so I brought it to that arena, stopped, you know, every now and then you got to stop into a, a bar and have a couple beers <laughs> and share it with people. And I did that. And people just, they can't believe it that you walk in and unexpectedly with the Stanley Cup. And that's a lot of fun. It's just a party starter. And if you get to get up close and look at it and you get to see Bobby Orr and Wayne Gretzky and, you know, all the old Canadians teams and famous players, it's it's pretty cool. Then I had a I had like a reception um, at a hotel for my friends and relatives and neighbors and and everyone else who got wind of it, I guess, showed up too. There wasn't, we didn't have any security or anything. So it was pretty crazy, but, you know, just felt like an outpouring from the community. And then that went from like in the late afternoon and then took it downtown to a place called the Loon Cafe, which is where I had spent a lot of summer nights staying out past my bedtime. And we had another party there and that went till two. And we took it to a good buddy's house and uh, we had a kind of a rager till I don't know, four or five in the morning, and by then we were out of gas. So, you guys, it sounds like you got your money's worth. Then. Oh, always. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, life after NHL. Can you talk a little bit about uh, all the uh, irons that you have in the fire these days? Yeah, it's been it's been busy. Um, you know, I've done a, a couple different things over the years in sales and some technology and business development. But uh, right now, I am um, helping run a junior hockey team in the North American Hockey League in the Null called the St. Cloud Norseman. Corey Millen, who was a teammate of mine, um, both at the U of M and in New Jersey briefly, is the uh, head coach. And so he and I are trying to turn that club around. Our son is actually on that team as well. He's been playing junior hockey uh, last year in the British Columbia Hockey League in the BCHL up there. And this year he's, uh, he's with us. He just recently committed to Colorado College, so he'll be playing hockey there uh, next year is exciting for us and we have a daughter who plays uh she's a senior in high school here in minnesota and uh she's the captain on her team and so we're going to watch a lot of her games and she's going to harvard next year play hockey so we have a couple college hockey players that we're going to get to follow around and and uh, watch them play and then we have a, a third son who's uh he's 15 and plays some hockey too but he's more of a soccer player than a hockey player he's pretty good at hockey but i don't I don't know that he's going to pursue it to the collegiate level. So, but yeah, so we're busy with our, with kind of with our three kids and I'm running this junior hockey team, the St. Cloud Norseman and doing some charitable stuff with groups I've stayed in touch with. And you mentioned Sean Podine over the years, done a lot of stuff with his um, children's foundation, which has done a lot of good work for, for uh, kids with ataxia. So yeah, so I see Sean um, periodically around here. Our daughters play against each other. He coaches the team that uh, that his daughter plays on in high school. So, a lot of irons in the in the hockey fire, I guess, including uh, setting a world record. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, that was um, my buddy Zach Lampa, who's who lives up north in Detroit Lakes. Kind of sitting around, you know, every now and then in Minnesota, the, the the freeze comes before the snow, and if you get a lake to freeze before there's a lot of snowfall, it's just like one huge piece of 
you know, glass that you can get out on and you can, a puck will go as far as you can shoot it, you know, or as long, it'll go as long as it, you can propel it. So we were just kind of contemplating it and saying we should videotape it and blah, blah, blah. And then I think he was doing it with another friend and they, they started using a golf yardage marker to see how far they were shooting the puck. And then one thing led to another and kind of looked up in the Guinness Book of World Records and there, there was no longest ice hockey pass. And so we talked to the Guinness book and, you know, as long as you can think it up and document it or measure it, they'll, they'll accept your application for a world record. It, it's not difficult to kind of get them on board. <laughs> it's expensive. If you want to, if you want to be in the book, you got to pay to play. So we, we rounded mm-hmm. up some money and, and which got us an official guy to show up. There's another way you can do it. You can submit on your own without paying a big fee, I think, but you, there's, you definitely got to do some research and, and videotape it and have all kinds of markers for whatever you're doing. I mean, you, you can set a world record doing whatever you can think of. But it was fun. We videotaped it and documented it, and did some kind of spoofy type interviews about it. And we just called it, you know, kind of hockey dads having fun. But yeah, it was, you know, I guess put it on your resume that I've got a Guinness world record too. Yeah, it's yeah, a pretty I, cool I, thing I, to just kind of little feather. Especially in the cap. at this point. I mean, I hadn't done anything cool for quite a while, so it was mm. felt pretty cool to do something in my fifties. All right, so I got one last one for you, and we always kind of end the podcast this way. Where do you currently keep your championship ring, and <laughs> and does it see the light of day? It, it does. It hasn't lately. It might tomorrow. I'm going to a, a fundraiser, a military thing. It's ice fishing contest or tournament, and I was asked to bring it because people will want to see it. But I actually keep it. In a drawer. I'm not going to say where, in case someone wants to try and come over and find it. But it's <laughs> it's a in name. a it's in an unusual, not very special place. You know, I don't have any I don't have any trophy cases that that I keep it in, and I don't have any my jerseys really framed and hung up. I've got a few of them, but they're just folded away in a bin. I've got a mini Stanley Cup and a mini Eastern Conference Championship trophy, and that goes next to my Mr. Hockey like chalice trophy thing that I have, but that's in our family room on a bookshelf up in the corner, not very prominently displayed. It's kind of off to the side. Yeah, I know the ring is kind of, it's just kind of thrown into a drawer, but, but I, 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 try to, I try to take it out once in a while. Well, listen, Tom, thank you very much for taking a few minutes and speaking to us today and uh, just kind of reliving the uh, New Jersey Devil memories. Well, thanks. It was fun to uh, stroll down memory lane and talk about those things. You know, it was obviously a highlight of my life and uh, playing with, with all those guys on that team was a really was a special thing that I was, was got to be part of. Thanks for listening to I One Two. This podcast is produced by Ed Miller and me, Max Morgan of Malix Media. I One Two is available wherever podcasts are found. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on Instagram at I One Two Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>